This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is recognizing small and simple ways to serve. In the first half, J. Michael Hunter shares his address, Small Things. Then in the second half, Kurt R. Seville speaks on living a life of service and love, what goes around comes around. As I was pondering what to say here today, the phrase, make a difference in the world, kept coming to mind. We hear the phrase in this season of graduation proceedings and commencement addresses. It's commonly used at a university. When I searched the phrase on the BYU website, I came up with over 5,000 results. It's a phrase that is often expressed in the context of future opportunities and actions, frequently suggesting something extraordinary. In this context, when students hear that they are preparing to make a difference in the world, they might assume that the difference they are to make somehow lies dormant until after graduation, so that when they do go out into the world, they are prepared to make a big impact. Today, I would like to look at it in a different way. I would like to discuss making a difference in the world in the context of the here and now and the small and simple. Wanting to make a difference in the world, Mother Teresa founded the Missionaries of Charity in 1950. The mission of her small organization was to help the poorest of the poor in the slums of Calcutta, India, through education and meeting the needs of the destitute and starving. She wanted to bring comfort to the sick and dying who often felt unloved, uncared for, and unwanted. Some 20 years later, the BBC sent an award-winning journalist to interview Mother Teresa about her work. The journalist reported that Calcutta was a scene of suffering and despair, the streets crowded with naked, hungry, homeless people whose needs stretched far beyond what the missionaries of charity could provide. The journalist suggested that a government agency would be better equipped than Mother Teresa to handle the destitute in the slums of Calcutta. The journalist stated, Statistically speaking, what she achieves is little or even negligible. End quote. He thought, as he later revealed, that the difference she was making was so insignificant that it was hardly worth the bother. Responding to the criticism directed at the insignificant scale of her work by comparison with the need, Mother Teresa noted that, quote, Welfare is for a purpose, an admirable and a necessary one, whereas Christian love is for a person. End quote. She told the journalist that the one was about numbers, the other about Christ. She explained that what the poor needed, as much as food and clothing, was to be wanted and loved. Her simple purpose was in providing that love. She served the one within her reach, doing the best she could with what she had. She said at another time, What we do is nothing but a drop in the ocean, but if we didn't do it, the ocean would be one drop less. Quote. Through her humble service, Mother Teresa made a difference in the world, drop by drop. After the interview, the journalist concluded, quote, Christianity is not a statistical view of life, that there should be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over all the hosts of the just, is an anti-statistical proposition, End quote. Jesus Christ taught us to love and serve the one within our reach. Sitting by a well in Samaria, Jesus spoke with a woman from the local village. He spent time with her. He listened. He answered questions. He showed respect. The teachings and miracles of Jesus attracted crowds. People in need, like the woman who reached out and touched his clothes to be healed, pressed about him, seeking his individual attention. Some tried to bring little children to him, wanting him to put his hands on them and bless them. When some of his disciples tried to send the children away, Jesus stopped them and asked that the children be brought to him. He took time out of his busy schedule to be with them. He took them up in his arms, put his hands upon them, and blessed them. Jesus spent time in the home of his friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. On one such occasion, he listened patiently to the complaints of an anxious and perhaps weary Martha who felt she was carrying more than her fair share of the burden of hosting guests. Jesus responded with kindness, understanding, and love. Later, when Lazarus became sick, Mary and Martha sent for Jesus. When Mary heard that Jesus was approaching, she ran to meet him, fell down at his feet, and said, 
If thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. When Jesus saw her weeping, the scriptures tell us that he groaned in the spirit and was troubled, and that he wept. He showed great compassion in mourning with and comforting those around him. Near the end of his mortal ministry, Jesus said, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you. While Jesus sat at the well or visited with friends in their homes, the streets of Jerusalem were filled with the homeless, the hungry, the crippled, the blind, and those with leprosy. But there was nothing negligible about his services. There is nothing negligible about the simple acts of kindness and assistance that you and I offer to those around us on a daily basis. Here at BYU, the one within our reach might be the roommate who has had a difficult day and needs someone to listen, or the professor who is having an off-day teaching and needs a little patience and understanding, or the guy in the lane next to us who needs us to give him a break by slowing down to let him over so he doesn't miss his turn ahead. We can find the one within our reach needing our assistance every day in our homes, in our communities, and in our classrooms right here on campus. It may only be a drop, but it does make a difference in the lives of those around us. President David O. McKay was fond of the 19th century quote, Life is made up not of great sacrifices or duties, but of little things in which smiles and kindness and small obligations given habitually are what win and preserve the heart and secure comfort." Quote. Mother Teresa said, It is never too small. We are so small we look at things in a small way. But God, being Almighty, sees everything great. Therefore, even if you write a letter for a blind man, or you just go and sit and listen, or you take the mail for him, or you visit somebody or bring a flower to somebody, small things, or wash clothes for somebody or clean the house, very humble work, that is where you and I must be. For there are many people who can do big things, but there are very few people who will do the small things. End quote. We read in the Book of Mormon that by small and simple things are great things brought to pass. This is illustrated beautifully in the birth of Christ. The Savior of the world was born in a simple stable in an obscure village to a woman of no great standing in the world. Out of these simple, small circumstances proceeded the Lord's great work of salvation. One of the most recognizable symbols of the Christmas season is the nativity, with a small babe lying in straw surrounded by animals. It is a reminder to us all that out of small things proceedeth that which is great. When celebrating the birth of Christ, we surround ourselves with symbols to remind us of what life is really all about, why we are here, and what we are supposed to be doing with our lives. There are two very similar fictional stories that have become a part of the Christmas tradition in the United States. One is Frank Capra's film It's a Wonderful Life. The other is Charles Dickens' novella A Christmas Carol, which has been adapted for film and theater. I believe the broad appeal of these simple stories lies in their ability to remind us of things that we so easily forget but really want to remember. They help us rediscover the small things that get misplaced in the clutter around us. I know it's a little off-season, but I hope you indulge me in referring to these stories to remind us of some things here today. The main characters in these two stories, George Bailey and Ebenezer Scrooge, live their lives in relative obscurity, interacting on a daily basis with the people in their neighborhoods and communities, going about the mundane task of life. Both are businessmen in the profession of lending money, a trade that brings them into daily contact with individuals needing assistance. Like his father before him, George Bailey runs his business with his head rather than his heart. He puts people before profits. His purpose in running a building alone is to help people get out of the slums. Kindness and respect characterize his daily interactions with those around him. On the other hand, Ebenezer Scrooge is described by Dickens as a squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner. He conducts business with his head rather than his heart, a head that Dickens says is as hard and sharp as flint. Prophets come before people. Despising the poor, Scrooge is perfectly content to keep them in the slums. Despite their differences, these two characters are very much alike. Both have forgotten the significance of their simple, daily interactions with others. The powerful, cumulative effect of daily living is lost on them. They don't get it. Not until there is Christmas Eve intervention to remind them of things they probably already know in their hearts, 
but have forgotten in their heads. George feels like a failure because he did not pursue his dreams of becoming an architect and world traveler. He has lived out his life in the same small town where he was born, doing the same small things day in and day out. He feels that he has made no difference in the world. Looking back on his life, he can find no meaning or purpose to it. He contemplates ending his life. George's life, however, is saved by an angel named Clarence, who has come as an answer to the prayers of George's family and to earn his wings. Clarence's job is to show George the impact of those small things he did day in and day out. Clarence sets out to prove to George that he really has had a wonderful life by giving him a vision of what life would have been like for others had George never been born. Visiting that same small town as a stranger who has never lived among them, George finds people without hope living in the slums. He finds unhappiness and despair. He hasn't been there to offer a hand up, and no one else has bothered. George realizes that his little deeds of goodness, his habits of selfless service, his small drops, have brought a better life to those around him and beyond. He's astonished at the reach of his small gestures. George had made a difference in the world without ever having left his hometown. Ebenezer Scrooge also had Christmas Eve visitors. The first is the ghost of Jacob Marley, Ebenezer's former business partner. He appears captive, bound, and double-ironed, with a long chain wound about him made of cash boxes, keys, padlocks, ledgers, deeds, and heavy purses wrought in steel. The ghost explains to Ebenezer that he wears the chain that he forged in life, having made it link by link and yard by yard through the choices he made, being eternally linked to that which he valued most in life. He explains that he is now required to walk the earth and witness what he could not now share, but might have shared on earth, and turn to happiness. Shocked, Ebenezer exclaims, But you are always a good man of business, Jacob. The remorseful ghost says, Business? Mankind was my business. The common welfare was my business. Charity, mercy, forbearance, and benevolence were all my business. The dealings of my trade were but a drop of water in the ocean of my business. And Ebenezer doesn't get it. He does not comprehend how the big things count so little, nor how the small things matter so much. He cannot get that flint head of his around it. In the course of that long night, he is visited by the spirits of Christmas past, present, and future. They come to show Scrooge that his cold-hearted, tight-fisted ways, his drops, have brought misery and unhappiness to those around him. His single-minded focus on his business has gradually resulted in his turning his back on his family and friends and in rejecting the needs of those in his community. Both Ebenezer and George have Christmas epiphanies, bringing them back to that simple stable in an obscure village. They come to realize that by very small means the Lord doth confound the wise and bringeth about the salvation of many souls. They remember, as we do through their stories, that the essence of our lives is the small, seemingly insignificant, daily interactions we have with others. We are busy people here at BYU. There are appointments to be kept, projects to be finished, papers to be written, assignments to be graded, and any number of things to be organized on any given day. In the rush of our daily lives, we, like Marley and Scrooge, can easily get our priorities mixed up and forget the small things that are most important in our lives. The one we need to assist could be sitting right next to us, but we do not see that person. Perhaps the person needing our individual attention has worked in the same office with us for years, and yet that person is invisible to us. If we become too preoccupied with the distractions that crowd around us, we may not feel the prompting when our Heavenly Father has an assignment for us. One of my responsibilities at the library is to meet one-on-one -on -one with students to assist them with their research. I consider it the best part of my job. I also sometimes have to write reports and attend to mundane office duties. On one occasion, I was feeling the pressure of an upcoming deadline. It had been a busy week, and I wasn't sure how I was going to get everything done. On my calendar, I had designated a couple of hours to get a task done. I told the student employees at our desk not to send any students needing research assistance to me that morning. I then went into my office and closed my door. A short while later, there was a knock at the door. 
I was irritated at the interruption. I went to the door and opened it. The student standing there explained that he really needed to meet with me as soon as possible, and he wondered if now would be a good time. Looking at my face, his smile dropped. Whatever I was radiating that morning, it wasn't friendly. Before I could answer him, he said, I see you're busy. I'll come back at another time. As he started to walk away, I had a prompting, a chastisement, really. I had made a bad choice. I had gotten my priorities mixed up. Like Marley and Scrooge, I had forgotten for a moment that mankind was my business. I told him to stay, that I would really like to meet with him now. As we talked in my office, he explained that he had transferred to BYU from a small college. The coursework here was more difficult than he had anticipated. He was feeling discouraged and doubting his abilities. He had two papers due, and he hadn't had much experience writing research papers. He found the library to be a complicated, large, and I'm sure thanks to me, unfriendly place. I had nothing better to do at that moment other than to orient a new student to library research and to offer a little encouragement. He returned to me several times for help after that. If I had let him walk away because I was too busy for him, I am sure he would not have returned. That prompting told me that. I believe that our Heavenly Father has small daily tasks that He would like us to do right here at BYU to make a difference. He would like to make us instruments in His hands in helping to fulfill His work. President Spencer W. Kimball said, God does notice us, and He watches over us, but it is usually through another person that He meets our needs. Therefore, it is vital that we serve each other in the kingdom. So often our acts of service consist of simple encouragement or of giving mundane help with mundane tasks. But what glorious consequences can flow from mundane acts and from small but deliberate deeds? Knowing there are angels among us attending to our needs and that no sparrow falls without the Father's notice gives us courage and faith to let go of our own troubles long enough to reach out and help others with theirs. It's a system of give and take that works best when all focus more on the giving and less on the taking. Along the way, our Heavenly Father sends us gentle reminders of the small things that are of the greatest worth. I first arrived on this campus as a freshman nearly 30 years ago. I had only been a member of the Church for four months. I was the only member of my family. I was over 2,000 miles from my home in Virginia and knew no one here in Utah. It was a lot to get used to all at once. At times, I felt like I had landed in a foreign country. I was overwhelmed with all there was to learn and do. I didn't know who my roommate would be in the dorms that first year, but I assumed it would be a lifelong member of the Church who could explain to me how things worked around here. The Lord, as He often does, had something else in mind. That first roommate wasn't a member of the Church. In fact, he wasn't from a Christian tradition. He was from Saudi Arabia, and he didn't speak English. He had come to participate in BYU's English as a Second Language program. I may have felt like I was in a foreign land, but he actually was. My challenges seemed trivial. His appeared to be overwhelming. He looked to me to tell him how things worked around here, and I hope he has forgiven me for not always getting it right. President Gordon B. Hinckley has told of his experience of feeling homesick and discouraged while serving a mission in England. He wrote home about it. His father's simple reply was, Forget yourself and go to work. I think that's the message my Heavenly Father was trying to send me that first year. Years ago, President Hinckley visited this campus and gave that very message to the students. He said, If the pressures of school are too heavy, if you complain about your housing and the food you eat, I can suggest a cure for your problems. Lay your books aside for a few hours, leave your room, and go visit someone who is old and lonely. There are many such right here in this valley. Or visit those who are sick and discouraged. There are hundreds of that kind here, including not a few on this campus, who need the kind of encouragement you could give." I was not left without assistance and encouragement that first year. In fact, I don't have time today to tell you of all the helpers sent my way. But I do want to mention one. Before I left home, my grandmother sat me down to determine if I was really serious about going to BYU. When, to her disappointment, she found out that I was, she said, You might as well know, then, that your grandfather has a cousin who joined the Latter-day Saints some thirty years ago. She explained the complicated family connection, but it went over my head. 
She explained that in the course of those 30 years, they had only seen this cousin and his wife at a few reunions, and that it was her understanding that he now lived in New Mexico. She said that at one of the reunions, she had heard that this cousin had a son who worked at BYU. She didn't know the son's name, but she provided me with the cousin's name. I tucked this information away in my mind, thinking that perhaps I would look this person up when I came to BYU. That first semester, I had registered for my general electives, including Biology 100. In my registration materials, the instructor of that biology class was simply listed as staff. On the first day of class, the instructor introduced himself as Larry St. Clair. I immediately recognized the name as the last name of that cousin. The thought, of course, occurred to me that I should ask him if he was the son of this cousin. However, as the class progressed that day, I started to talk myself out of the idea, thinking that there could be any number of people on campus with that last name and wondering how I would approach the subject since I wasn't exactly sure how we were related. The feeling that I should introduce myself persisted to the point that I felt pushed forward. At the end of class, I hung back, waiting for a portion of the class who had surrounded the professor wanting to add his class. If you've ever been in a Biology 100 class, you know this was a hundred or so people. My turn finally came, and I introduced myself, asking him if he was the son of Jack St. Clair. When he confirmed this, I introduced myself as his cousin. He asked me a few questions. At this point, he could have said, Nice to meet you, tell the folks hello, and left it at that. But he invited me to dinner that week so I could meet his wife, Rita, and their children. I went to dinner and met the St. Clair family. At that point, Larry had certainly fulfilled any family obligation he might have had, and again, he could have left it at that with a clear conscience. However, he was in tune enough to recognize the one within his reach who needed his help. He somehow realized that I was a little homesick, a lot overwhelmed, with no family support in the Church. The Sinclairs invited me to dinner again and again and again. They invited me over for holidays. They invited me to go to activities with them. A few months after that initial meeting, Larry St. Clair bestowed the Melchizedek Priesthood and ordained me to the office of an elder. A year later, Larry and Rita accompanied me to the Salt Lake Temple for my first visit to the temple. A couple months after that, Larry drove me to the Missionary Training Center to see me off on my mission. Jump forward 20 years. I was 2,000 miles from my home, this time in the opposite direction, on the East Coast at a conference away from my family and home in Utah. I received a phone call from my distressed wife. I could hear our children crying in the background. Our family had suffered a heartbreaking loss. I felt helpless. I couldn't get home immediately. After we ended our phone call, my wife loaded the children into our van and drove to Larry and Rita St. Clair's house. The St. Clairs found themselves with a living room full of heartbroken people. Larry took each, one by one, and placed his hands on them and gave them blessings of comfort. When we are willing to accept assignments from the Lord, they may only take a moment, but they might also take a month or a year or a lifetime. The important thing is that we are in tune enough to see the one within our reach who needs our help and that we have enough faith to accept the assignment. It won't be convenient, and I hope nothing I have said here today has given the impression that I believe small and simple means easy, because it doesn't. But I believe these small and simple things will become our most valued university experiences. When Mawi Askadam, an Ethiopian native who had once lived in a Sudanese refugee camp, left for Harvard University, his mother said to him, Always remember where you came from. Once he arrived at Harvard, he got caught up in the rush of everyday university life, which for him involved clubs, sports, a lot of classes, and a part-time job. He said remembering where he came from became far less important than knowing where he was supposed to be every half hour of the day. During his sophomore year, he was working as a delivery man for the Harvard Student Agency. While waiting for a package in the office, he watched as an elderly and feeble woman walked in. She asked if there was someone there who could type a short letter for her. Such a simple, easy thing to do, Mawi recalled later. The receptionist explained that they had no typing services there and sent her away. Looking a little confused, the woman started to turn away, but another worker in the office called her over and gently set her down and then typed the letter for her. Mawi said, Never has a Harvard student seemed so great to me as in that moment. 
In that moment, Maui began to reflect on what his mother might have meant when she advised him to always remember where he came from. He had been the recipient of many such kindnesses in his long journey from a refugee camp to Harvard University. Many angels had helped him along the way, and he had noticed that most angels don't look like angels, so it shouldn't have surprised him as much as perhaps it did to find one looking like an ordinary college student there at Harvard. Thinking back on those angels and their kindnesses, he realized that each had taught him something important about life and inspired him to reach out to those around him. In their small ways, they had made a difference in his life. Maui graduated with top honors, giving the commencement address at his graduation in 1999. Reflecting on what he had learned at Harvard, he said, many facts and formulas, many new ways of thinking, a fresh understanding of the world, end quote. But in his commencement speech, he highlighted that seemingly insignificant act of kindness he witnessed that day in the student agency as a turning point in his education as he began to reflect on what is most important in life. He said, while Harvard University taught me well, my true education has come from less likely sources, end quote. I pray we will always remember where we came from and that we will follow Christ in reaching out to those around us. Christ-like love transforms our simple, everyday living into something extraordinary. It's the love of Christ that makes the difference. We don't need to leave BYU to make a difference in the world. There are people within our reach here who need us. There are assignments waiting for us here. We just need to accept them. In the words of David O. McKay, there is no one great thing that you can do to obtain eternal life. And it seems to me that the great lesson to be learned in the world today is to apply in the little acts and duties of life the glorious principles of the gospel. Let us not think that because some things seem small and trivial that they are unimportant. Life, after all, is made up of little things. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is recognizing small and simple ways to serve. We've just heard from J. Michael Hunter. After the break, we'll return with Kurt R. Seville for Living a Life of Service and Love. What goes around, comes around. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is recognizing small and simple ways to serve. Next is Kurt R. Seville, director of the BYU School of Music at the time of this address, titled Living a Life of Service and Love, What Goes Around, Comes Around. I would like to begin my remarks today by paying tribute to my parents. It wasn't until I began serving my mission that I realized that some parents didn't value their children, didn't do everything within their power to make their lives better, and didn't help their children aspire to be the best they could be. I was one of the fortunate ones, along with my brother and sister, to be born into a family where I was loved, nurtured, and taught by loving parents. They had high expectations for me. But when I failed, they were still there to guide, encourage, and show me how to pick myself up and move forward. My parents, to the best of my knowledge, had never been very active in the Church. They encouraged us children to attend, but their attendance was infrequent. Yet it was from them that I learned how to live a Christian life. My father, in particular, was the kind of person that could never pass by someone who needed help. I recall a trip from Salt Lake City to Bear Lake, where a weekend of clear blue water, swimming, skiing, and fun awaited me. Our typical route was to go to Evanston, Wyoming, and then on to Bear Lake. However, about 20 miles to the southwest of Evanston, Wyoming, my father noticed a man who was trying to flag cars down on the other side of the divided highway. My father could never pass someone who needed help. He drove five miles up our side of the freeway until he found the first turnaround, drove back five miles, picked up the man who had run out of gas, went five miles in the wrong direction, turned around again, drove all the way to Evanston, helped the man get gas, and then drove him back to his car. Being an impatient teenager, I was more than irritated at the long delay, probably two and a half hours. After we finally got on our way, I asked my dad why would he go so far out of his way to help someone 
Surely someone else could have stopped and given him assistance. My dad simply responded, What goes around comes around. After seeing the confused look on my face, he further explained, I believe that someday you or I will be on the side of the road looking for help, and someone will return the favor. Being ever the optimist, I replied, I seriously doubt it. So today I would like to title my talk, What Goes Around Comes Around. We've heard this before in many different forms. The Boy Scout slogan, Do a Good Turn Daily, Pay It Back, Do Unto Others As You Would Have Them Do Unto You, which is the golden rule. We reap what we sow. These are all well and good, but my dad lived by the mantra, what goes around comes around. He would help anyone, anytime, and anywhere. But on the other hand, how many times have we heard or said, no good deed goes unpunished? In today's world, we see evidence again and again televised for the world to see that the world is an ugly place where those who are innocent and who try to do good come out on the short end of the stick. I had often hoped that my father's mantra was true, but I was never quite sure I believed it. Over the years, I learned to admire the dedication that my father had to his mantra, but I must say that I never saw it come around until years later when we took a trip to Flaming Gorge Reservoir. I remember it clearly because it was Friday the 13th, and since I was the only child left in the house, I knew it would be a great getaway with my parents, and we loved to fish at the Flaming Gorge. This happened while I was in high school, which, according to my kids, was shortly after the earth cooled, and most likely during the Jurassic period. <laughs> we owned a small cabin cruiser about 14, 15 feet in length. It was big enough to sleep three if someone was willing to sleep on the floor, and that was always me. We put our boat in at Sheep Creek Marina, and our goal was to go as far north towards Wyoming as possible, spend the weekend in our little boat, and fish until we had our limit. As I remember the day, we joked that it was Friday the 13th, and what followed later that weekend etched that date forever in my mind. On Friday, heading towards the Wyoming side of the reservoir, we had traveled some distance before we began to fish. Frankly, the fishing wasn't very good, but we loved being out on the boat together and in such a beautiful place. I remember my father saying, Look, there's a man on the far shore who's waving at us. I looked up, but I could barely see anyone. But I knew it was time to pull in the lines. We fired up the motor and went towards the other side of the reservoir where the man was still waving at us. It seemed odd to me that this man was standing on a barren hillside with no other boat in sight. But when he saw we were coming, he motioned for us to go around a bend into a small hidden cove. When we came around the hill, I was shocked to see a big, beautiful yacht pulled into the shore. It was easily twice the length and width of our little boat. The man thanked us profusely for coming to his assistance. He hadn't been able to get anybody else to notice. His battery was dead, and he wondered if we could help him. We did, and soon his big motor roared back to life. The man and his family were very grateful. We lost an hour of fishing, but we were soon back out on the reservoir. The next day, the fishing didn't improve. Matter of fact, it was terrible. We decided to call it quits and go back to the marina. We were about two miles from the marina, where we had launched our boat, when we found ourselves fighting a blustering headwind that slowed our progress. The waves were kicking up, and suddenly our engine decided to quit. We tried in vain to get it running, but it simply wouldn't start. My dad was the kind of guy who was an absolute do-it-yourself kind of guy. He had built our boat from a do-it-yourself kit. He could always keep our cars and our boat motors running, but not this time. In the midst of trying to pull start our outboard motor, much to our surprise, the fellow in the big yacht pulled up and asked if he could be of assistance. I was never so pleased to see someone. Flaming Gorge is a very big reservoir, and we had been out for two days. I was amazed that of all the people on the reservoir, this would be the person to show up to give us aid. He offered to tow us back to the marina, even though we were still a long distance out. We happily accepted his kind offer. All was going well. We'd been going at a nice, even, slow click for some time, being pulled behind this monstrosity of a boat. We could actually see the marina in the distance when suddenly the motor on his yacht died. <laughs> we checked the gas lines. We checked the fuel filter, everything. But it just wouldn't start. Friday the 13th weekend kind of luck. We tried his little trolling motor, thought maybe we'd get that going. But it wouldn't start. In the meantime, the wind had kicked up into gale force wind, and it was blowing us further and further and further away from the marina. 
I could barely see the Marine in the distance as my dad and Mr. Yacht Guy worked on the engines. Three motors, and not a single one of them would start. What luck. Out of the blue, a little old man and his wife puttered up. Twas on a little 12-foot open bow, aluminum, fishing boat. I remember being shocked to see his wife sitting there, all done up pretty, with pancake makeup plastered on her windblown face. I thought, what in the world are these two doing out here in this tiny boat amidst all of these winds and waves? The old gentleman kindly offered to tow us in. I looked at him in disbelief, quite frankly. He hooked the line to the big yacht and with his little 25-horsepower outboard motor puttered away like a tugboat with a battleship, and soon he and the big boat faded out of sight as they went towards the marina. Meanwhile, we were being blown ever further away from our destination. We were still in a pickle. But 45 minutes later, the little old man and his wife came back out to us, tossed us a line, and proceeded to tow us back to the dock. I was amazed that these folks had been so willing to go so far out of their way to help. Their kindness and willingness to give so much time and effort to assist total strangers was a gift that I will never forget. By now, we were fast friends, made so by the events of the day and the weekend. We helped the rich fellow get his boat loaded onto his trailer, and next, a little aluminum—never could say that word—boat. As fate would have it, the old gentleman had left the lights on in his car, and his car battery was dead. <laughs> My dad went up and used his jumper cables to get his car running. We all helped to get the little boat and ours safely secured onto our trailers. We laughed all the way home on the adventures of that weekend. What goes around really does come around. I finally had a chance to witness my father's mantra in action. I may be a little slow, but this was a lesson of a lifetime that even I couldn't ignore. Thanks, Dad, for being such a wonderful example to me. In the 2013 Liahona, President Uchtdorf wrote, A favorite saint of mine often attributed to St. Francis of Assisi reads, Preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. Implicit in this saying is the understanding that often the most powerful sermons are unspoken. I am so grateful for the unspoken lessons that my parents taught me. When I came up short in my obedience or actions, I would often attempt to justify my poor behavior by employing an overabundance of characteristically charming charisma. My father would shake his head and reply, Son, your actions are speaking so loud I can't hear a word you're saying. To him, actions were more important than words. His living example of how to lead a Christian life taught me the following important principles regarding service. Service should be given with a smile and with no expectation of a return. Too often we pass by opportunities to serve because we simply can't see them. Service is seldom convenient. Service most often happens when you're on the way to do something else. Service will eventually come back around. I think these principles are self-evident, but let me elaborate on just one of these. Service is what you do when you're on your way to do something else. We can plan to give service, and I think that is excellent, but I believe the Savior taught and exemplified a better way. Christ most often blessed others when he was on his way to do something else. Some examples. The parable of the Good Samaritan. Wasn't the Good Samaritan on his own journey, which he had to interrupt in order to provide assistance? The Levite and priest both chose not to see the wounded man, but rather passed to the other side and stayed on their intended business. Another example found in Mark chapter 10, when Jesus was teaching the people regarding marriage, he was interrupted by those who brought young children to him, that he should touch them, and his disciples rebuked those that brought them. His disciples actually wanted him to get back to the real business that was at hand. But when Jesus saw it, he was much displeased and said unto them, Suffer the little children to come unto me, and forbid them not. For of such is the kingdom of God. This became a powerful teaching moment in Christ's ministry. Another example in Matthew 9, we read about what appears to be a single remarkable day in Christ's ministry. Christ was teaching his disciples when he was again interrupted. While he spake these things unto them, behold, there came a certain ruler and worshipped him, saying, 
My daughter is even now dead, but come and lay thy hand upon her, and she shall live. And Jesus arose and followed him, and so did his disciples. On his way to find the ruler's daughter, Christ was touched by the woman who had an infirmity. He stopped and asked, Who had touched him? He then blessed and healed her. Christ then proceeded to travel on to the ruler's house, where he announced the daughter was not dead but was sleeping. They laughed him to scorn, yet he proceeded to raise the ruler's daughter from the dead. In verse 27, it says, When he departed thence, two blind men followed him, crying and saying, Thou son of David, have mercy on us. And when he was coming to the house, the blind men continued to implore him. He then healed them because of their great faith. And then in verse 32, as they went out, behold, they brought to him a dumb man possessed with a devil. He was healed, and the dumb spake. Christ was interrupted again and again and again while he was about his own intended task. Yet he was willing to see those who were invisible to others. He interrupted his plans and blessed those who needed his loving touch. Do a good turn daily. Pay it back. We reap what we sow. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. What goes around comes around. The same concept was taught by Alma to his son Corianton when he was trying to explain the meaning of the word restoration. Apparently, Corianton thought that he could do evil in today and later good could be restored to him. Alma said to him, Therefore, my son, see that you are merciful unto your brethren. Deal justly, judge righteously, and do good continually. And if ye do all these things, then shall ye receive your reward. Yea, ye shall have mercy restored unto you again. Ye shall have justice restored unto you again. Ye shall have a righteous judgment restored unto you again. And ye shall have good rewarded unto you again. For that which ye do send out shall return unto you again and be restored. Therefore the word restoration more fully condemneth the sinner and justifieth him not at all. My father was teaching me, as Alma had taught his son, that the kind of life that you live will be restored to you. If you are merciful to your fellow men, mercy will come back to you. If you judge righteously, righteous judgment will return to you. If you do good continually, good shall return to you. If you are just, justice will be restored to you again. Put in other words, if you want a friend, be a friend. If you want mercy, show mercy. If you want forgiveness, forgive others. If you want kindness, be kind. If you want respect, respect others. We are all flawed beings. We have our ample share of problems, insecurities, weaknesses, and failures. But I have learned that one way to overcome them is to share whatever modest strengths and attributes that we do possess with others. I testify that they will come back to you. And each time you repeat the process, your confidence and your strength in that virtue and attribute will grow and become stronger. Will there be bumps? Absolutely. Will the restoration of good for good be immediate? Most likely not. But somehow, somewhere, sometime, these things will come back around you in greater abundance than the amount that you gave. King Benjamin assured his people that if they would obey God's commandments, that God would immediately bless them. Don't despair when life is not fair or when it seems that no good deed goes unpunished because there is hope and a promise that a good life is its own reward. I personally find great hope in the following remarkable Latter-day Scripture. I refer to Doctrine and Covenants 130.20. There is a law irrevocably decreed in heaven before the foundations of this world upon which all blessings are predicated. And when we obtain any blessing from God, it is by obedience to that law upon which it is predicated. Do a good turn daily. Pay it back. You reap what you sow. The golden rule, for that which you do send out shall return unto you again and be restored. What goes around comes around. How does this apply to our lives here at BYU and to our lives in general? Well, we may not have the opportunity to jumpstart someone's boat in a hidden cove in a vast reservoir, but we can share a smile and a hello with someone on campus whom we don't know, one of those students whom we pass by each day who has a downcast countenance, one of the many who are weighed down with the worries of their day. A smile really can 
turn a frown upside down. We may not have the opportunity to go out of our way to refill someone's gas tank, but aren't most of us just running on fumes by the end of the day? I know I certainly feel this way, maybe too often. We can express confidence and trust in our fellow students when they struggle in class or stumble over something that might have been obvious to others. We can encourage each other as we attempt to do the many hard things that are part and parcel of college life. Many years ago, my sweet wife presented an object lesson in a family home evening that had a lasting impact. With two buckets, one empty and one filled with water, she gave each of us an empty cup. She then demonstrated how easy it was to deplete the full bucket of water by saying unkind things. She then gave each of us a chance to fill each other's cups by saying something kind. We took turns saying something nice about each other. And with each act of kindness, my wife added water both to the giver and the receiver of the compliment. This was a great visual representation of how easy it is to empty someone's bucket or alternatively how, by simple acts of kindness, we can fill someone else's bucket. And I must note that through the process of filling someone else's bucket, we fill our own. Gordon B. Hinckley said, I have discovered that life is not a series of great heroic acts. Life at its best—let me repeat that—life at its best is a matter of consistent goodness and decency, doing without fanfare that which needed to be done when it needed to be done. I have observed that it is not the geniuses that make the difference in this world. I have observed that the work of the world is done largely by men and women of ordinary talent who have worked in an extraordinary manner. John C. Maxwell, recognized as a leading inspirational leadership coach, put it this way, doing the right thing daily compounds over time. Our families always loved the classic Christmas movie, It's a Wonderful Life, starring Jimmy Stewart. Think about that one for just a moment. Stewart plays the role of George Bailey, who has aspirations to get out of Bedford Falls and see the world. He has big plans and he has big dreams. However, George spends his entire life giving up his big dreams for the good of his town. Of course, you all know the movie, and if you don't, right now is a good time to rectify your deficiency. <laughs> I can't think of a movie that better exemplifies the long-term effects of a good life, nor can I think of one that better epitomizes how the good that you do will eventually come back to you. Think of the closing scene as the town rescues George and how he comes to realize that he has had a truly remarkable and wonderful life. The kingdom of God is built by small and simple things. In Alma 37.6 we read, Now ye may suppose that this is foolishness in me, but behold, I say unto you that by small and simple things are great things brought to pass, and small means in many instances doth confound the wise. In short, we don't have to do something gigantic or impressive to build the kingdom of God. We don't have to convert thousands cut a hole in the rock and descend a thousand feet in a covered wagon, heal the toxic algae bloom in Utah Lake, or create a company that will make millions. We just need to work at being a little better each day by reaching beyond ourselves to serve in even the smallest ways. A word of encouragement, a door held open, any act of random kindness, reassuring a friend who's having a bad day, sharing the music of the songbird, the flutter of the leaves in the trees, the sound of birds in flight, the music of laughter, and perhaps, and perhaps the silent sob of one who is suffering. My father could see people who are in need that others couldn't see. How is it possible that so many could pass by the man who was stuck on the side of the road, yet my father, who was going 70 miles an hour down the other side of a divided highway, saw him like he was lit up with a neon sign? How did my father see the invisible man who was waving for help on the far side of the gorge when all I could see was the water and my own fishing line? Let me speak for a moment of those who are visible and invisible. Have you ever felt invisible? I know that I have. Sometimes in a crowd with very little effort, we can remain invisible to those who seem to be the life of the party. Even here at BYU with over 30,000 students, I'm certain that we have, at times, felt invisible. I believe it is easy to feel like no one sees you, the real you, the vulnerable, insecure, and anxious you, the you that needs someone to believe in you, the person that is stranded on the side of the road while everyone else rushes by. I sometimes worry that the habit of engaging with our cell phones too often has the effect of making everyone around us invisible. 
I myself am guilty. Though we are attempting to stay connected and visible to our friends, we inadvertently shut the world out. We won't recognize another's need if we can't see them. We won't be able to give service on our way to do something else if our eyes are fixed on a screen instead of the humanity that surrounds us. Ferris Bueller said it best, Life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you could miss it. I love the hymn because I have been given much, because it teaches these same principles so powerfully. Because I have been given much, I too must give. Because of thy great bounty, Lord, each day I live, I shall divide my gifts from thee with every brother that I see who has the need of help from me. Because I have been sheltered, fed by thy good care, I cannot see another's lack, and I not share my glowing fire, my loaf of bread, my roof's safe shelter overhead, that he too may be comforted. Because I have been blessed by thy great love, dear Lord, I'll share thy love again according to thy word. I shall give love to those in need. I'll show that love by word and deed. Thus shall my thanks be thanks indeed. I've heard it said that a grateful child is one of life's greatest blessings, but I would have to add that one of my greatest joys as a parent has been when I've witnessed our children being kind and generous to someone whom they don't know. That is probably because this represents and reflects the kind of love that Christ has for each of us. Love, God's love. How do we bring people to Christ? We do so by sharing His love with our brothers and sisters. Today I hope I've been able to convey some of the small and simple ways that we can show and reflect God's love. First, we must see. See those who are invisible. See those that need to be encouraged, lifted, and healed. Second, we must be willing to interrupt our business, even for only a moment, while we are on our way to do something else. Third, we must act through love. The more we love, the greater our capacity to love becomes. The more love we share, the more love we will have to give. I testify to you that the more love we give, the more love will come back to us. Do a good turn daily. Pay it back. You reap what you sow, the golden rule. For that which you do send out shall return unto you again and be restored. Be a bucket filler. What goes around comes around. I wish to express my deep and abiding love, affection, and gratitude for my wonderful parents and for their devotion and for their love, which remain a constant in my life, even though they have both passed on. I leave you with my testimony that the greatest work that we have in today's world is to see the unseen, to lift arms that have fallen, and to share God's love by loving our fellow man. I believe that in doing so we have the chance to heal ourselves and to bring all of us closer to the perfect love of God, of the power, the depth, and beauty of His divine love. I stand as humble witness. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Recognizing Small and Simple Ways to Serve, with thoughts from J. Michael Hunter and Kurt R. Seville. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.